0: Keith
1: Genevieve Kosky is on vacation, but she will totally be back soon because we absolutely did not slaughter her and feed her to our pet basement cannibals. Speaking of basement cannibals, in the first half of this conversation, we talked about The People Under the Stairs, the 1991 film that brought horror director Wes Craven back to overt political metaphor and made racial inequity and prejudice an open topic of discussion. That same sort of overt political metaphor hangs heavily over Get Out, the feature directorial debut of Jordan Peele, half of the comedy pairing of Key and Peele. I cannot emphasize this enough. If you have not seen this film yet, you should really turn off this podcast and go watch it. The best way to walk into this film is with no specifics about exactly how it addresses racial conflict or where the story is going. Even more than most films, it's a discovery movie where the question hanging in the air is whether Chris, the black protagonist played by Daniel Kaluga, is just being paranoid when he thinks there's something strange going on with the rich, friendly parents of his new white girlfriend. The film keeps us close to his point of view as he navigates their lush lifestyle and a form of friendliness that always seems a little dangerous, especially when he meets their strangely artificial, emotionally removed black housekeeper and groundskeeper. Get Out builds up an incredible tension as the viewers squirm over all the embarrassing, awkward ways white liberals Dean and Missy, played by Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener, try to show their non-racist bona fides. It's almost a relief when it turns into an actual full-on horror movie instead of a film about social awkwardness. But then there's a lot more discomfort to navigate, including the directions the story seems to be going towards the end and the way all Chris's racial fears turn out to be true.
0: So you guys coming up from the city? Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend. Can I see your license, please? He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID.
1: Call me Dean and you're hungry, my man.
0: So how long has this been going on? This this thing. (laughs) (laughs)
1: We hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go.
0: Do you smoke in front of my daughter? I'm
2: gonna quit. She'd take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. I'm good, actually. Are
1: you ready for
2: this? I'm back in the B. So look, I go do my research... Apparently, a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's
0: cool. bro. how are you not scared of this, man?
2: Couldn't see no brother around here. Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being
0: here. Get out. Sorry, man. Get out! Yo! Rose, we gotta go. Is everything
2: okay? Rose, the keys. Just get the keys. I
0: don't know where they
2: are. Rose sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Sink. Mine's a terrible thing to waste. It's a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> too many white people are getting
1: nervous All right guys, tell me that you loved get out as much as I did or get out.
0: <laughs> I liked it a lot. Uh, and, but and I'm going to agree with you completely when you say that it was almost a relief when it turns into a full-on horror film instead of a film about social awkwardness because good lord, the first <laughs> like what 30 40 minutes of this film I just I really just wanted to crawl under my seat, I mean that in a, in a great way, but just oh boy, the shudder of of recognition within myself uh, and also within you know, certain members of my family. just the whole thing felt like just a shot that was aimed right in my head, and uh, I appreciated uh, the film greatly for that. I I deserved the zinging. It's played in so
2: many ways that it just feel taken from life, from the really brilliantly executed encounter with the highway patrolman early on after they hit a deer to the specifics of the way all the white characters try to talk about race in a really enlightened way that just exposes their underlying racism and and one after the other each one a little more uncomfortable than the last that that party scene is, is amazing and rough
0: the thing that really just killed me was bradley whitford talking about to him about how obama's like the best President of his lifetime. It's just like, oh man, <laughs> this is too much for me. But so, Tasha, but you love this film. We're, we're we're just chatting away here. You, ever I love this
1: film. I mean, I loved it for the degree to which it it made me feel. I mean, I just I felt so in the skin of this character and it was it was such a cringy cringy skin i guess like listening to you talk about it i I realize i guess the penny hadn't fully dropped for me but the reason it's a relief when it becomes a flat-out horror film is suddenly there's action that can be taken you know when he's in these incredibly awkward conversations with these seemingly well-meaning white folks who just keep throwing microaggressions at him, who just keep trying to compliment him in the most insulting ways possible or trying to assure him that they're great people by kind of bringing up how what awkward people they are, there's really nothing he can do except – smile awkwardly, and he is, he's an awkward smiler. I mean, he spends so much of this movie kind of trying to gently defer people, go along with whatever they want, agree with them. He's a very passive character, which Jordan Peele has said is a very, very deliberate thing.
2: Yeah, Kalu is so good, too, because he's such an expressive actor without saying that much. You get the feeling this is someone who's really learned the value of I could say something here, but it's not going to get me anything except more awkwardness. So I'm just going to, going to smile and go along. Not, not because i don't know any better. It's just, you know, what is to be gained by pushing this, uh, this exchange any further.
1: And there are a bunch of different layers to that. I mean, when he pulls that move, when the white patrolman asks him for his ID, he's doing it because we're living in a country and he's currently traveling in an area where he doesn't want to be seen as an aggressor Mm -hmm. against a policeman who could shoot him. When he pulls the same thing with his girlfriend's parents... It's because he wants to maintain his relationship with her and it just becomes kind of another layer on top of the discomfort that we all can potentially feel around the parents of like a new girlfriend, a new boyfriend, somebody – people that we sort of feel like we have to impress but might really want to get away from.
0: And this really feels to me like the first true Obama horror film. I mean we talked about – uh, the People Under the Stairs, Reflecting the Reagan Era. I mean, this is a story about uh, Jordan Peele, like Obama, is, is biracial, is is ha- used to having to navigate this world. And is so insightful about what that means. And I couldn't help but think of things like, if you recall, before Obama made Joe Biden his vice president, Joe Biden said a few things that were racially a little bit off <laughs> And um, it was something that Obama was able to kind of absorb and forgive and look past a little bit. And you can you can see that impulse in Chris so much in the first half of the, of the film, like you said, w- with his encounter with the police officer, for example. But in many of these exchanges of of uh, knowing that it's not going to be such a great, good idea for him to push it and to really just be walking on eggshells all the time. I mean, w- w- what was the Obama presidency but just trying to educate country on race and, and really having to be perfect in order to do it. There was never a moment where Obama could be as brazen as a white president could or certainly as a Trump It's almost like you need some kind of anger translator (laughs) to convey this. (laughs) Yeah, that's right.
1: Jordan Peele's been very specific about the fact that he this movie's been percolating for him for a while, and it kind of first percolated up when Obama was first elected, and he looked around him and saw that there were specifically liberal white elites who felt that racism had been solved. You know, it Mm -hmm. was over. Uh, We're fine now. Everything's great. We can all get along. Did it, guys. (laughs) Congratulations. Mission accomplished. Giant banner on the back of the the country. So that's kind of where he's coming from here. And of course, he's being interviewed a lot right now about how this movie plays for the Trump era. And he kind of admits that it's not pitched at the Trump era. It's pitched at the Obama era. It's an idea that doesn't entirely suit the moment because he was not anticipating this moment when he made the film.
2: Yeah. The other branch of this, which we see Lessa, but we see very memorably in the opening scene. And hey, another gimp suit uh, (laughs) was uh, the son Jeremy, who is a – I guess you can't call him a serial killer uh, since he doesn't kill his victims, but a a serial assaulter of black men and women who just beats – the, the first person we see in the movie and, and surfaces later in the movie for his nefarious purposes. So there is a the overtly ra- racist branch of the family, but then there's the branch that is maybe not even aware of their racism in some ways, which makes them all the more creepy.
1: That's something that I was really curious to hear your reactions on. When Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener's characters are talking up their family's history with Jesse Owens or how much they want to do to vote for Obama for a third term or whatever it is that they're saying, is any of that just a cover for their racism, their expectations that, you know, they have the right to own black bodies, that black people aren't really people to them so much as, as fodder? Or do they really believe all of that stuff, which kind of makes it worse because they're hypocrites?
2: I think both are true. I, I think it's a film in many ways about in some ways the inescapability of white privilege if you're white uh, is that they can you know, profess these liberal views while also uh, knowing that they have nothing to lose by professing these liberal views because they have all the privileges of, of any other white person and they, and they can do this as well. Uh, I think that's part of why the movie works as well as it does. I also like that it's uncompromising and, and that it really would have been easy to throw in a white buddy Uh, For Chris to sort of defuse the situation and say, they're not all like that, you know. And I don't really feel that the movie is professing that, but it doesn't give itself an easy out either. And I think that's uh, a very daring move.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in that they do have that level of, of comfort where they can profess liberal beliefs, but not really have a lot personally at stake Mm -hmm. in the way things kind of go, which is maybe something else we're going to learn in the Trump era.
1: Yeah, when you talk about how daring it is, I just I admire Peel so much for not not caviling on these points, not compromising, not trying to like back down and, and stick a not all white people in there. I mean, this is a pretty uncompromising film where all of the white characters are basically irredeemably evil and he he uses that to amazing effect and i love the fact that he doesn't compromise that and try to get in a but we can all get along kind of message to it i mean i i think that makes it just so much more interesting and effective a statement
2: i also liked how there's some fairly hoary devices in this that are made effective like the whole hypnotism thing is sort of a, a you know a horror staple going back to the 1930s but the way it's filmed is really quite effective the whole the way he visualizes the sunken place that the sort of the hypnotized state that chris sinks into it was really quite unsettling it reminded me of phantasm yeah. uh, where, where all of a sudden you just have these these surreal visuals out of what's been a very recognizably real world grounded film
0: so there are, though I will say there is just one really bad plot device, which should, is which is the the box of pictures, so we can find out what happened to all of the other uh, black men that yeah. she's brought. I mean, come on, <laughs> like the, the door is like open. It's just like we need. It was such a screenwriter's convenience. Like we need this information out there. Let us provide an actual literal door to get to that information.
2: And it did, did get your favorite thing. Also, it's like oh yeah, cell phone, cell reception is really bad out here. We can just get <laughs> yeah. one of those in there. Yeah. Well, I like
0: how it's though though just at least they're, for much of the film they're d- deliberately Keeping the phone from being charged, right? Which is clever.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I don't remember a uh, cell reception is bad. no. I, I
0: was referring to that. It just sort of like that. that the, the unplugged the, thing. The, the
2: general horror films have to figure out a way that they're, sure. You know, yeah,
1: but like I feel like work. this is the like the unplugged thing is especially clever because they foreground it so often. It's not a mm-hmm. it's not a throwaway thing at the beginning of the movie where they're like, oh, cell reception is bad. They make him really uncomfortable with it. And it's one of so many tiny little things that's like, how much can you vociferously object to the fact that your phone got unplugged? You will look like an asshole if you make too much of a deal out of it. But it really is a problem. You know, somebody's touching his property. Somebody is controlling his access to the world. Somebody is, you know, threatening the only communication that he has with somebody that he trusts that cares about him. And it becomes more and more of a like a feeling of aggression tied to the, what is it's like such a small thing. I One of the things I loved most about this movie is that for me, it just it feels so tight there are so many little tiny things that when they initially happened, I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. That's neat. And then it pays off. And I sort of responded with, you know, OK, there's the payoff. And then it came up again, like in a smarter way. It's a really well-built script over time. And for me, the biggest example of that is they hit the deer. There's the business with the, the cop. You think that the business with the cop is going to pay off with the cop being the person who shows up in the car at the end mm-hmm. and it's going to go in a Night of the Living Dead direction. But the part with the deer is there to remind him of how his mother died. The part with his mother dying is there to establish that nervous habit he has of, of clawing at chairs. The nervous habit he has of, of clawing at chairs is what leads to his rescue, But the fact that his mother died from being hit by a car also leads him to take his grandmother, the grandmother into the car, which endangers him. It's just this spider web of thought through connections. Mm -hmm. So many horror films are just this like A, B, C, D kind of checklist of thing happens, thing happens, thing happens. Here, we keep coming around in a circle back to points that we've already established. And it makes him feel like a real character living in a real
2: world. And and as you pointed out after, after the screening, too, is that in exchange with the cop, takes on new meaning when you realize that Allison Williams' character is, is running interference for reasons beyond trying to protect her boyfriend She's, he won't be on the police record that way mm-hmm. as well, that's, an, and that's your brilliant observation, not mine, but but yeah, that's another way, it's, yeah, it is very clever this is not a lazily constructed film
1: by my brilliant observation, we should point out that it is my husband's brilliant observation. Right. He's actually in the room producing the podcast, and so he might just turn down my mic to nothing if I let you know, <laughs> if I let you get away with giving me the credit for yeah, that.
0: Bob's doing a great job. <laughs> He's doing a good job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man. Cell phone reception is really bad in this studio for some reason.
0: Um, I will say um, I need to note a couple of things because I really – I mean I, I like the film a lot, stem to stern or whatever. But the beginning of the movie, that first – 40 minutes is what I like the most. Before we find out, it's the Severed Wives, basically. Mm-hmm. The opening sequence is so smart. <laughs> I mean, you really just know you're in great hands with that because conceptually it's wonderful. It's like, oh, I've, I'm in the wrong neighborhood. And that that's a scene that we've seen played in racially reversed way a thousand times. And just mm-hmm. to have that, it, you just have to do just, just one little twist and it just makes it play. And it's very stylish, too. It really kind of establishes mood really well and gives you a sense that jordan peele knows what he's doing behind the camera as well that it's not just you can always count on key and peel to come up with you know brilliant conceits i mean they did that over and over again in the sketch comedy show but it is i think especially for a first-time filmmaker uh pretty confidently directed the other thing i like too about the film is how this situation is signaled to be a very very bad one for chris immediately just the fact that she hasn't told her parents that she has a black boyfriend and that he's going on this trip and he's nervous about it and his friend's like oh my god this is terrible i think it's just again it's a film that's so full of insight. It almost doesn't need to be a horror film. I'm, I'm perfectly happy that it is. But um, if it based on anything, it's based on satire.
1: Here's the thing. I think anybody who listened to the first half of this podcast and uh, like listened to us uh, hand-wringing about Trump is perhaps aware that we are the liberal white elites that are being skewered in this movie, <laughs> that we all kind of self-identify that way. And Part of being a liberal white elite, I think, is coming with a certain amount of of white guilt, of racial guilt. So I think we're particularly primed to watch this movie and go, oh, God, is that me? That might be me. Oh, God, is that what it feels like to be faced with me and to, like, cringe along with Chris and identify with him really, really closely? And one of the things I found myself wondering throughout this Mm -hmm. film is – Black viewers are going to experience this differently. White viewers who don't have white liberal guilt are going to experience this very differently people who are racist are going to experience this film extremely differently. And the the special snowflakes who are out there right now, knee-jerk reacting to anything liberal they see in the world and screaming at it as some sort of like bastion of how dare people have feelings are probably not going to see this movie. But if they are, they're going to walk out five minutes into it. I just, I find myself incredibly curious how people and this is the problem with being in a room with a bunch of like educated white people from roughly Similar backgrounds. I really want to know how a lot of other people are seeing this film.
2: You see, with the crowd though, it played really well when we saw it. Like I, you could just feel the crowd. It had the viewers kind of kind of locked in, it just, and that's because it works effectively as a horror movie. Although I think as Scott was about to say I'm not sure the action in the end is, is, is staged as grippingly as it perhaps could be you know I think that maybe it's a, it doesn't a,
0: get better than the first sequence cinematically right yeah
2: but no it's nothing to see that either I mean I, this is I feel like this is Peel arriving as, as this is not someone who's dabbling <laughs> in writing and directing a horror movie he knows what he's doing no
1: and he said he's he's got another four horror scripts that he wrote that he couldn't right. get made before this and I'm I'm I
2: I want to oh, see every boy. One of them. well it was a huge hit too so it, it, it will oh my we'll, gosh we'll, we'll, we'll see it
0: and the nice thing, too, is I like think generationally younger people now, you know, get it a little bit more, right? I hope so. You hope so, right? <laughs> just to maybe a little usher in the post-racial world that we thought was ushered in. I did not think that, really. But uh, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, just- uh, And for
2: paving the way for that? You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome.
0: <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. God. I mean, one Thank thing, you, I, one thing I have to kind of bring it back to in terms of uh, it being a, an Obama movie was- As much as Peel was talking about white liberals feeling like racism was solved by Barack Obama's election, I think we all can remember feeling extraordinarily crestfallen by election night when Trump won and finding it just inconceivable that this is what the country is. And you saw a lot of people of color say, yeah. This is not surprising to me in the same way it is is to you. Um, this is not disillusioning. this is the way it is and uh you know this, this is a film that, the type of film that really i think understands that intrinsically
1: yeah i mean it 's certainly a film that 's just that 's very deeply entrenched in. In the black experience of the world, like so much of Key Peel's comedy, it takes the black experience as a language. And I feel like to some degree, it helps you learn to speak that language over the course of that first 40 minutes or so. And I mean, that in and of itself is it's like a great service before we move on. I think we, we have to take a moment to call out the character of Rod played by Lil Ray Howery, who functions as a sort of lifeline and comedy relief throughout the first half or so of the movie. Um, he takes on a different role as the the film progresses, but this is a really comic element that there were times when I didn't quite think it worked because First of all, uh, the comedy is so loose compared to the tautness of uh, the, all of the terrifying stuff. Mm-hmm. There are points where, especially when he's talking about Jeffrey Dahmer, where it really does seem like like a typical comedy movie where you just let the guy riff and like cut out the funniest stuff to put in the movie. Mm-hmm. But at the same time... I really appreciated coming down from this level of incredible tension. And I appreciated Chris kind of having this like outside voice that he could speak to who did understand his language, who was part of his culture, who he could reach out to and say – am I crazy? Like, are these things a bad things? Are they weird things? Or is it just me? And he he could get an answer reflecting his own experience.
2: And when he loses that, the film gets even more tense. Mm-hmm. When that connection is broken is when you realize he's really in the stew pretty deeply.
0: Yeah. And, and, and of course, whenever he tries to turn to, <laughs> You know, another African American who is near him—it's uh, someone who has been brainwashed and who he can't relate to at all.
1: Oh my God, the performances of the uh, the man and the woman that played the groundskeeper and the housekeeper. Uh, Walter and Georgina Marcus Henderson and Betty Gabriel
0: Better, uh, Betty Gabriel especially holy crap
1: oh they are uncanny <laughs> and they're meant to be uncanny but oh. they're so effectively uncanny I loved the performances in this film mm-hmm. just I, I think this is an incredible use of uh, Catherine Keener in particular um, but also Bradley Whitford who kind of strongly recalls his Cabin in the Woods character yeah. we've already talked about Daniel Kaluuya's role and uh, I enjoyed Allison Williams a lot too I spent the whole movie wondering which side she was on on and being confident that the movie could take it in either direction that it would be a comfortable surprise. I just, I really like this movie, guys. Yeah, me too. Well, we'll be right back after this break to talk more about Get Out and about the people under the stairs and how those two films relate to each other.
2: I got hypnotized last night. Nigga, get the fuck out of here. Oh, yo, 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 yeah, yeah, to quit smoking, but it was Rose's mom's a psychiatrist. Bruh, I don't care if the bitches are Yana Van Zant, okay? She can't fix my motherfucking life. You ain't getting in my head. I know she called me off guard, right?
0: But it's cool because I'm cured. It worked. Bruh, how you're not scared of this, man? Look, they could have made you do all types of stupid shit. They
2: have you fucking barking like a dog, flying around like you're a fucking pigeon. Looking ridiculous, okay? Or, I don't know if you know this, white people love making people sex slaves and shit. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're not a kinky sex family, dog. Look, Jeffrey Dahmer was eating the shit out of niggas' heads, okay? But that was after he fucked the heads. Do you think they saw that shit coming? Hell no, okay? And thanks for that image right there, man. Hey, man, I ain't making this shit up. I saw it on A&E, man. It's real life. Yo, and it's the black people out here, too. It's like all in Mr. Movement. Because <laughs> they probably hypnotized. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Obviously, the things that they most have in common is that they're both horror movies. They're both horror movies kind of overtly about race, and they're both horror movies with comedic elements. But it feels like that they use all three of these things very differently from each other.
0: Yeah, I mean there's more of a conceptual and an executional there's a more discipline to 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 get out from a script level and from a level of performance and direction. I mean it really has that is inspired as um the people under the stairs is and and I think the passage from Knowles re- review that we quoted in the last episode really gets at, at how smart Craven's idea was for the film. I think just the execution of this idea and get out is it's um sharper
2: yeah part people under stairs uh which which i like uh but establishes an allegorical setup and then it just walks you through it over and over again uh through the until the movie's over this is uh, a subtler and a shiftier uh film in in, a way that i think makes it uh, a little richer
1: I mean, both of these movies are kind of about specifically about white privilege and about white people using black bodies for their own gain. And neither one of them are subtle about it. They both state it openly to make sure you don't miss it. But at the same time, I don't know how much I feel inside Fool's experience in People Under the Stairs in part because it feels so much more described than lived for the most part. Like that that opening sequence with the tarot cards and a few moments that he has with his mother, that moment where he tells his mother, I'm going to buy you two Cadillacs, one for each foot, so you can go skating down the street and you'll look so good. Both of those are like very immersive moments where I actually felt like I was part of the scene of this family. But so much of the rest of the racial stuff in People Under the Stairs for me is more about having it described to me, You know, here is the mechanic by which you interact with people of another race and it is bad. Whereas in Get Out, I felt so much more like locked into the discomfort of being there.
2: That's I don't want to put one against the other because I feel like People Under the Stairs is a really fun, visceral, um, sometimes literally visceral horror movie. And this is a a different sort of uh, horror movie. But I mean, People Under the Stairs has virtues of its own.
1: Oh yeah, I'm not saying that they that they're not virtuous. I'm just kind of I'm looking at them in comparison via how they do the same things. I mean, if if you want to get into what one does better than the other, people under the stairs has some really effective and well designed gore, and Get Out kind of keeps that at a pretty low level throughout. I mean, they they both have their strengths.
0: Yeah, I mean, Get Out is not as a horror film is. Not, it's not. A, well, I don't think either film is particularly scary, but I, I don't think Get Out's strengths is as a, is a straight up. Horror film and its drinks are, are are conceptual and satirical. And People on the Stairs has uh, maybe got more interest in delivering the goods in terms of just uh, genre entertainment. One thing, though, you mentioned, I think, in the first part, Tasha, is the connection between... Chris and and Fool, I mean, they both go on a journey in this film. I think in their respective films, and they both you know learn learn things about the world and learn things about themselves and how they can combat this situation that they're given and take take action against their oppressors. So in that in that sense, the films do have something pretty strong in common. Oh
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, both are in the words of that tarot sequence about fools on journeys who you know they're not they're not bad; they're just ignorant and they have to find out what the world is really like and then they have to learn to fight against it and both is, both of them are about kind of the boy burning away and learning to become a man and I find it interesting that one of them is about a 13 year old learning to become a man which I mean he's told at the beginning of the film by Ving Rhames that he basically needs to it doesn't matter that he's a child he still needs to man up and help put money on the table but Chris is his much mo- his older his mother tells
0: him that too if you really? remember Fool's mother tells him that he's the man of the house mm-hmm. and so he has to take on those responsibilities i think the difference though with between uh chris and fool is is chris does know what he's getting into to an extent you know he does feel queasy about going he knows what these sorts of interactions are like but i think he's used to navigating them in a certain way and the situation calls for him to find a more confrontational and direct way of getting through. Well, sure. I mean, uh, he
1: basically learns that, that placating people will not keep him safe. Yeah. And, I, you know, it, given, that, given that thought that Fool's mother is the one who tells him he's the man of the house now, he's got to be a man, I wonder then if it's significant that uh, Chris doesn't seem to have quite learned or quite internalized that message yet, but he lost his mother when he was younger than Fool. Like, he maybe he just didn't have somebody to tell him that. It's a pretty sobering and or depressing thought <laughs> much as that whole thing with his mother is a pretty sobering and or depressing uh, plot line how do you guys feel about the, like the the use of of humor in get out is very overt i mean it's very keen peel it's it's kind of confrontational and deliberate there are like these little intervals of humor almost when rods talking it feels like in people under the stairs the humor is less naked and more kind of baked into the premise how I mean, how much do you think it's meant to be a comedy?
2: So I think with Get Out, he'll obviously – he knows humor. That's so been established uh, very well. But I, feel, I don't feel like it, he's ever succ- succumbing to the temptation to do a comedy – that has horror elements. He's doing a horror film that has uh, roots in, in, in satire and satire and plays to his comedic strengths, but it's still ultimately a horror movie. And, and I think in People Under the Stairs, it feels like the horror is, you know, it's very broad it is very um, over the top, but it's also used the way humor is often used in, in horror films, which is to diffuse the tension, at least temporarily, before things uh, heat up again. You know, I, th- I think with Get Out, it's, it's a little bit little bit more of a hybrid where they're woven together
0: a little more tightly i kind of wanted to piggyback off a point that you made too about uh, rod and about certain points of the film where improvisation and riffing makes it seem like a different kind of comedy because the thing i really like about satire is that you really do have to be directed toward the conceit, the the writing has to be directed towards that conceit, the humor has to be directed towards that conceit, and there's a sharpness to that um, that you wouldn't associate with some of Rod's comedy, I guess, some of the the riffing that goes on that maybe seems apart from what the the rest of the the film. And it was refreshing to me to get a comedy like Get Out or or have the dark comedy elements of... Get out. Have this intentionality to them, not to to not be random, to be really hammering home real insight, uh, that which is what satire does, and and what disciplined comedy does. I mean, that's the thing that I really miss in modern comedy, which favors improvisers and performers and people who can think on their feet. I mean, all that stuff is great, but but it doesn't necessarily make for more. Taught comedies, or or well written comedies, or make even the script all that relevant a document. Uh, whereas the script uh, in Get Out is exceptional and extremely important, and something I think that the film, by and large, adheres to, uh, as it would a, a drama.
1: One of my many favorite things about Get Out is just a sense that the the script has been worked over so intelligently that everything is intentional and there were just there were so many little moments where i came out of the film at at the end thinking I missed the intentionality of that because it it didn 't come up until later, but things like when Bradley Whitford uh, says that the basement is closed off because they 've got a problem with black mold, and it comes mm-hmm. in the middle of this whole conversation about Jesse Owens and you know the strength of black athletes, and then when he suddenly mentions black mold. There's a deliberate list to that there's a deliberate list to using that word, and part of it is because you know black mold is the the poisonous kind, the dangerous, lethal kind, but part of it is just you're already primed to hear that word as a little bit of a threat, and you're already primed that every time this family mentions blackness, it's a little uncomfortable for some reason, and you see Chris sort of twitch a little at it, and it's like they dog whistle you with the word black in order to get past the fact that the basement is shut off because it's an impromptu evil surgery center and you don't think about that until much much later because it's just one of these things that you gloss across i had the same reaction to uh when whitford is introducing the two black servants he says just really casually we brought them in to take care of my parents Mm -hmm. and then when my parents died we couldn't let them go <laughs> the wording on that is very deliberate and very conscious.
2: Yeah, that hit me later too. That's that's a uh, yeah. That's a nice touch,
1: Keith. One of the connections you wanted to bring up was uh, was Power Games, and that that definitely has a sense of Power Game about it. What were you thinking of with that topic?
2: Well, we talked about the Gimp Suit and and uh, people under the stairs, and you know, I don't know how deeply we want to go into psychoanalytic reading of either of these movies, but it definitely is a film in which uh, who has the power and who doesn't, and who's on top and who's not, is keeps shifting throughout the film. And with this, we get that a little bit as as well. But I don't think it's I don't think Chris ever until the very end of the movie has any power in this movie as well. It it puts him in a situation, one situation after another, where he's completely powerless, either because of the authority of others over him, uh, as with the cop... Or the need to not upset his host, you know, the staying within the confines of polite society kind of keep him powerless as as well. I think, as as with all things, it's more overt in people under the stairs. But some, in some ways, some of the di- same dynamics are playing out here.
1: I guess I didn't think this through thoroughly, but now you've really got me thinking about it. And it just makes the movie more horrifying. There is really isn't a whole lot of reason that they couldn't have just bashed him over the head the second he entered that house and taken him downstairs. The reason, the primary reason they don't is first so they can slowly set him up with a hypnosis process, but mostly because they need to introduce him to all of the people that will be bidding on him. Mm -hmm. like. I hadn't really thought through the like the power games of that situation where they invite him in and try to make him welcome for an entire weekend and it's just so the people who are going to be considering buying him, can see him in action, can meet him socially, and can all interact with him. That just, I mean, I talked at the very beginning of this about how part of the premise of Get Out is that this kind of like soft racism is as dangerous as overt racism. But when you look at what goes on in Get Out versus what goes on in People Under the Stairs, which does feature a couple of characters that are very overtly, nakedly racist, I'm a little torn at which one of them feels more dangerous.
2: Yeah. One character I really like and get out is the character by Stephen Root, who ultimately ends up purchasing Chris. And they have a moment before Chris is fully aware of what's going on, where they kind of bond. They both love photography. Stephen Root is a photographer turned art dealer who's who's lost his, his sight. And they really do seem to feel a connection to it. And you kind of get the sense that, I mean, he's, he, he's a character who doesn't really go to great lengths to profess that he's not racist. And you get the sense that Chris kind of senses he isn't racist. And maybe he isn't, but you know, it's a conditional white privilege that ultimately when it comes down to it, if you have something I want, I'm going to take it from you because I can. And that's what that character does. And that, that's one of the more interesting relationships in the film.
1: One thing that just sort of occurred to me is that both of these films kind of deal really uncomfortably. I mean, kind of the root of the horror in both cases is this idea of what what's left over after you've taken what you want. You know, the people under the stairs are the leftovers from the Robesons taking in kids that they wanted to be perfect and finding that they weren't up to their standards so they cut off some part of them and threw the rest of them in the basement and you just kind of have these leftovers you know growing fouler and creepier down in the basement over time the leftovers of that process in the case of get out the leftovers are the tiny remnants of personality left in these people who have been brain swapped and that come up in the most painful ways at the most inconvenient times which the original stepford wives didn't have for fairly obvious reasons the idea that your your body has been stolen but you're still down in there somewhere i think is one of the most terrifying ideas that the film has among many of them
2: yeah i mean the moment when lakeith stanfield's character says the title line and it was this full-throated uh, voice of his original personality is the only time it really gets to, to surface it's a genuinely scary moment
0: yeah that's a great moment in the movie for sure and, and yeah just imagining that fate of being uh forever in the sunken place until at that moment he snaps out of it however however briefly it's just like it's such a a big shock in a film that doesn't you know isn't that concerned with providing those kinds of shocks I, i mean i think it's okay being what it is i don't think that get out tries terribly hard to be a horror film in any conventional sense. I mean, I think we identify it as such, and it has uh, some, some scary moments and some atmospheric moments, but I think it just plays this scenario out and doesn't really try to create, you know, the kind of jump scares or the things you might expect from this kind of a horror film.
1: I mean, there are a fair number of jump scares in Get Out. Like, there's the deer hitting the car. There's the housekeeper suddenly running. walking by in, like, Exorcist 3 style, like, deep in the back of the frame mm-hmm. with the stabbing music. Mm-hmm. There's the whole opening sequence. Like, Get Out does a little bit. All does right. get into it. Yeah,
2: I do see it first and foremost as a horror film, no matter what else is going on. And I think it really is still rooted in that tradition.
0: Yeah, I guess maybe it just didn't seem as you know, forced or formulaic or trying to conform to what you might expect from a modern studio horror film. You know, Because we see so many of those and they all look alike. So
2: what you're saying is it's, it's a good horror film.
1: It's a, it's a good film, <laughs> yeah. so it's not horror.
0: <laughs> if
1: that if was coming well, from no, somebody well, else, no, Scott.
0: No, no, that just makes me sound stupid. No, no, it's Which is no. Possible. possible. No, but... This isn't a horror film. This isn't the Bye-Bye Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. This well, is here's an... the
1: thing, Scott. Earlier, when we were kind of tweaking the script a little bit, um, you suggested describing both of these films as satire. Do you see Get Out more as a satire than a horror film?
0: Yeah, I do. I, I would, I, you know, I mean, it's a hybrid. I mean, you, I would call it a horror satire, a satirical horror film, or something. I, I don't. I, I see it as a hybrid of both, pretty equally.
1: But I mean, if people under the stairs is specifically satiring uh, the Reagans and Reagan America, what is this satirizing?
0: It, it's satirizing race in america i suppose to put it broadly i think that's probably about about right uh and in church you know certainly for the uh first half especially you know s- satirizing a very specific type of of you know white liberal elite and uh, i mean that's a really interesting target it's a bunwellian impulse to mm-hmm. to mm. to satirize this type of family right i mean a bourgeois family. I mean, I think this is a movie that Boom would have appreciated. It has that kind of a super strong conceit and it goes after people who would actually be the audience for the movie sometimes, right?
1: Oh, that's fascinating. I I see so many touchstones in Get Out. I, I mean, obviously, there's the Stepford Wives. There's uh, the original Wicker Man, you know, somebody lured into uh, a conspiracy and trying to figure out what the conspiracy is. You know, there are a bunch of, like, horror films. And People Under the Stairs feels like a touchstone. It had not occurred to me to see Buniel in there. But now that you mention it, I mean, it does feel a little of a piece with movies like Exterminating Angel. They're kind of deliberately laughing at the bourgeoisie you know mm-hmm. at the at the upper crust in their pretensions that's a really interesting thought
0: yep. i brought it just threw it in there you know it's like a hail mary pass at the at the end of our connection segment <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah we should mention also we, we did consider pairing the stepford wives with this, it's an obvious inspiration. Peele has touched on it as as such. But it was almost too big a spoiler <laughs> to have that as our episode <laughs> title. So we want to yeah. say a little less obvious. It's worth seeking out. Um, this is, I think, more successful ultimately. But I really like The Step Wives. It's another film that plays very broad satire, but also finds some really unsettling horror underneath that satire for those who don't know it's it's a film in which Catherine ross plays a feminist inclined woman who is uh moves to the suburbs and discovers that uh, all the women around her are just a little too perfect and a little too eager to please their men and, and it's a horrible bargain where they've been replaced by robots it's it's very much worth seeking out but again it's funny and everything's very big but it's also really unsettling, this, the, the idea of, of being replaced by a machine, that these men could live with machines and, and find that preferable. It's, it's very much a good companion piece.
1: It's also an interesting just point of comparison when when people because there are people who have seen Get Out or at least heard about Get Out who are calling the film racist, you know, because there are no good white people in it. And I can't help but wonder if people saw Stepford Wives and said this movie is incredibly sexist because not all men, not all men. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder if the same people would have been offended in the same way because the movie is in the same way speaking to its era and speaking to this idea of like this is what it feels like. To be a woman right now is to have this constant uncomfortable pressure that you're not doing it right, and like you're disrupting the social order by having opinions and ideas ideas of your own. Maybe if you you know shut up and and were like our imaginary version of you in the fifties, society would run smoothly.
2: This movie's
0: so dated, except for one. <laughs> it's so dated, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I've been kind of uh, avoiding a lot of get out takes. Are are there really people like in print saying this thing is a There is a
2: critic who shan't be named for a publication called the national review. Oh, right. The first to weigh in, but some I, as I suspected, I think some of the Fox News crowd kind of picked up on it uh, and, and uh, responded unfavorably. Our friend Alan Shierstall at the Village Voice was criticized for his opinion in a publication. What's it called? The Daily Stormer, I believe it's what it's called. <laughs> no, the storm. Yeah, it's oh, the lord! It's a non- wow. Nazi publication. He was posting uh, screenshots of uh, that uh, earlier today. So oh,
0: I, thought, I thought he was posting to it, it as <laughs> no, like, no, no, it was no. Like Alan, man, don't don't <laughs> don't
2: poke the hive. Uh, no. There, There's also
1: been a few uh, articles out there that are doing the usual, like, can we find a contrarian on social media somewhere <laughs> that tweeted or Facebooked a, a, an adverse reaction? I mean, this film has been universally praised by critics, more or less, by mainstream critics. Uh, regardless of walks of life, it's got a hundred percent. Last we checked on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah,
2: and I knew when that was being passed around. i was like, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> you will put a big target on this yeah, movie no. for so. Also, like, also, I think here everyone, everyone was
0: waiting for Armand White to uh, be delivered as <laughs> as promised, but um, it is
2: now at ninety nine percent. because Armand White spoke up. That's Possibly, right. I don't
0: know. And, yeah, and there's also what there was also an absolutely. I did read a fairly ridiculous Newsweek piece which wouldn't be ridiculous in a different context. It was saying, well, it's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, but Rotten Tomatoes just registers positive and negative opinions about films, not how positive and how negative you are about a film. And I, I've, I've had that complaint about Rotten Tomatoes forever but i would not I would, I would not want to make it in reference to get out it's like why 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 now why now and why in reference to that film uh do you have to say wait people are not as enthusiastic as as they seem because well, all, because everyone at least likes it
1: maybe it's because of some sort of you know deep-seated buried racism and the liberal liberal white elites that have taken over everything yeah. it couldn't be that oh you're right it couldn't be that let's just self-congratulate us we we yeah. fixed racism did, guys. great job <laughs> We're pretty cool. As white people, we're pretty cool that this movie's cooler. Uh, you can find The People Under the Stairs on DVD and Blu ray. You can find it streaming for rental on the usual services. Uh, meanwhile, Get Out is doing tremendously well in theaters and will hopefully be there for a while to come. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it your next picture show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, kick us off. What has been good for you lately? I
2: okay, got good. <laughs> I don't know. This is a movie that if I had a chance to to rate it on Letterboxd with with what I wanted, I'd probably give it like five question marks. Uh, <laughs> but I I wanted to go see A Cure for Wellness, which is Gore Verbinski's new movie. Um because I'd heard interesting things about it. I think Verbinski is a really it's a very skilled director. Uh, Verbinski is the guy who directed the uh, remake of The Ring. He directed uh, Rango, the animated film. The first three Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Lone Ranger. Um, he knows his way around a camera. He knows how to how to, how to create atmosphere and and stage a uh, a set piece. And this was a film that I. I don't know how it got made and released by a major studio, and and I'm glad it did. Uh, It's the oddest thing. Uh, It's Dane DeHaan plays a a very young Wall Street trader who has created some sort of impropriety and as punishment is sent by his firm to track down their CEO who has written a strange letter and disappeared into the depths of the Swiss old-style clinic that are situated over these healing springs. And what follows is, A, filled with like sort of Early twentieth century, mid twentieth century, medical divisory in in very creepy ways, which I appreciate it. But it's almost more like a big budget version of a Roger Corman Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, which is this super gothed out horror, you know, horror movie uh, with all kinds of unsettling details and and this plot that gets more disturbing and twisted as it goes along, to the point of a finale, which is very strange and crosses all kinds of lines. I can't believe actually got through the MPA rating system in a way that was um, able to be released. You know, I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think it's flawed in some really interesting ways, but uh, I was never bored, even though it's two and a half hours long. Um, (laughs) I I don't know. I recommend seeing it and seeing it in theaters. If you, if it's even anywhere and and still playing by the time this is released, but uh, it's definitely a curiosity worth seeking out.
0: That's the that's the sneaky thing about this time of year, the the dregs of January and in February, is that you get you get some misfits, and those misfits are often pretty compelling uh, because they don't um, they're not the sorts of movies that studios are supposed to be putting out, especially you know in a system that feels like it has so much. Under control right now,
2: yeah, and there's some there's just on a purely just visual level, there are some shots in these movies that you know are just stunning and some just conceits that are quite disturbing and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think everyone in this room at least would uh would appreciate it and uh, I'm sure if you're a fan of this podcast, probably tune it up to our sensibilities to uh, to want to seek it out as well
1: yeah i I saw the trailer for that thing, and I thought that looks like ninety percent pure toshnip. And 10% sucker punch. And I I wasn't sure which way the balance was eventually going to fall on the actual movie. I'm still really curious. I want to see it. A little
2: bit of sucker punchiness to it. But really, I mean, I do think it is... Like those Poe films that Roger Corman made, uh, right down to the sort of we're going to aggressively use this one color scheme to the point where where you'll think the whole world is is built around <laughs> these these shades shades of different colors. I don't know. It's, it's
0: uh, you're killing me it's, with yeah. these Poe yeah, <laughs> Corman uh, comparisons. You dig it, man?
2: Tasha, how about you?
1: Um, while we're talking about horror films with black protagonists and which uh, now that I think about it just seems a little subversive in and of itself because of the, the long established the black person dies first trope in horror movies uh, which by the way if you look up on uh, TV tropes uh, there's quite a long and entertaining list of those and it depresses me that it's such a thing but that makes it all the more subversive I guess when you have a uh, horror film with a black protagonist and particularly when I, is there such A thing as blackwashing in film. There is a movie called *The Girl with All the Gifts* that is Uh. playing an extremely limited release, but uh, it was also day and date released on uh, streaming, on demand. Um, You can rent it uh, online all over the place. It's based on a horror novel by Mike Carey, who is an author I'm extremely fond of, and I loved, loved, loved this book. He published it under the name M.R. Carey, I think to keep it from getting confused with all of the other things he was doing in comics and writing kind of hard-boiled supernatural detective fiction as Mike Carey. Um, but M.R. Carey has only written a couple of books and they're both spectacular. And it's really hard to know what I can say about this movie that wouldn't be giving away things that I don't want to give away. This is another film slash book that I think you you best go into with absolutely no idea where it goes because the lead up is – so brilliant and there's so much going on in it where you, you don't know what's going on. I guess I can I can start by saying uh, the protagonist of the film is a, a young Black girl who's being kept in some sort of institution, and figuring out what that institution is and what the rules are and why it operates the way it does uh, is a huge discovery, um, but it is a horror film. In the book, the main character was white, and uh, the teacher that is the only person in her life and in the institution who cares about her on a human level is Black, the makers of the film decided to swap those two characters. Um, so the protagonist is played by a little girl named Sinia Nawa, and she is just she's spectacular. She's just she's such a bright spot. It films with child protagonists can be very difficult uh, if they're not pitched right. She did give such an amazing performance in a in a pretty demanding role, and the people around her make a very convincing uh, small cast of characters for a, a horror survival situation. So. Yeah. I honestly if you like horror um, and if you think certain horror genres have been played out but you're still open to them I would strongly recommend not watching a trailer and just sitting
2: down to this movie. Yeah, I did you did you write about this movie? I don't believe I did.
1: I think I talked about it a little. I saw it at TIFF and then I came back and talked a little bit about it, but uh you know, it's it's just now available for uh broad release.
2: Yeah, I I wrote about it and and much as you said I I said you're probably better off not knowing too much about this movie going into it. And then I realized I had to write the rest of my review. So Mm -hmm. I had to reveal a little bit. So I'll just say that it does participate in a very familiar genre. I feel like the middle of this movie is just a, doesn't really show me anything in that genre I haven't seen before. But the bookends of this are really sharp. This is a I like this movie a lot, and and uh, the cast beyond the lead is Glenn Close and Patty Constance and, and Jim Artered, and so there's no there's no there's no scrubs in this movie. That's a very well cast movie. I like this movie a lot. I'm glad you this was my second pick, and so I'm glad uh, you mentioned it
1: absolutely scott what do you have for us
0: this is one of my favorite times of the year not not only because you get quirky little films you don't expect like get out and perhaps a cure for wellness but also i can just do whatever i want <laughs> you know i'm not catching up with end of the year films like a, a, a mad scramble uh, like i am every year there's not a whole lot of essential things to see in theaters and so Uh, This is going to be another edition of Scott's Adventures on Filmstruck. (laughs) Um, I've been turning once again to Filmstruck in my free time, specifically a series of film noir and westerns uh, directed by Anthony Mann and photographed by John Alton. Uh, If you ever saw the documentary Visions of Light, you'll probably remember that Alton was heavily featured as a paragon of noir style, uh, where most studios at the time were doing uh, uh, a lot of lighting from the ceiling. Alton was setting up his lights on the floor and working very quickly and working hard to hide information as much as he he was in revealing information. Uh, I've seen three of the films so far. uh, T-Men, which is about treasury, agents working to bust counterfeiters, Uh, Raw Deal, which is about an inmate who's broken out of prison for nefarious reasons, and He Walked By Night, which is about a killer on the streets of Los Angeles and is a big influence on Dragnet. Um, All of them are quite good, especially Raw Deal, uh, which has a really unusual love triangle at the center of it. The star attraction for me is uh, Alton's Images, uh, which are graphically stunning and consistently imaginative. There's a sequence at the end of He Walked by Night in, in the drain tunnels of L.A. That, that that not only predates The Third Man, but I think uh, truly rivals its beauty. So uh, if you really like film noir style and, and, the, and black and white and hard shadows and graphically inst- interesting... Images I mean for that alone these films are, are worth seeing quite apart from their their content which is also I think compelling especially raw, raw deal I mean just in terms of actually the, both parts of the film working really well a raw raw deal is just a truly great noir so I'd recommend that and then there are a couple other films that are that um, are both westerns that uh, that are also included in this kind of five film package uh, uh, that they have up on filmstruck now Anthony Mann, John Alton.
1: Fantastic. Keith, are you familiar at all?
2: I'm familiar with Anthony Mann, uh, but I've not seen those movies. And I've actually had them on my list of things to see for a long time, and I have a Filmstruck subscription. Well, they're nice and short too. That's the nice thing. It's just like yeah. boom, I can watch it. Like Raw Deal, I think is an hour and twenty. That's minutes. just it. That, that's perfect. I'm looking for for short is good. Short mm-hmm. is good. Yeah. Is, uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you hear that, that. That makes me uh, more inclined exactly. to seek them out soon. Exactly.
1: We'll watch them soon because as we're recording this, we're just about to be out of February, and uh, by the time this airs, we'll be into March, and you'll be running shorter and shorter of time as uh, more and more actual films that we're all supposed to see come out. But in the meantime, thanks for those recommendations, guys. Uh, I'm sure they will be particularly meaningful to people who are wading through the gigantic sea of content that is filmstruck and looking for a little direction.
0: Seriously, yeah. It's it's an embarrassment of riches.
1: And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out March 21 and 23. Uh, Scott, what do we have lined up?
0: Well, with Kong Skull Island stampeding into theaters, we want to go all the way back to its origins, not only of King Kong... Uh, but of big screen spectacle itself with a 1933 production with Fay Ray and a giant gorilla. Uh, The film remains a standard bearer that many other films have revisited since, from the 1976 Dino De Laurentiis production with Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange to the three-hour Peter Jackson version from 2005. Uh, Perhaps every era gets the King Kong it deserves, but we thought it would be a good time to reflect on what the 1933 Kong and what the 2017 Kong say about their respective eras.
1: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The People Under the Stairs and Get Out and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott.
0: Um, well, you can find me at so many different places. You can find me at the uh, New York Times. You can find me at Washington Post, NPR, Vulture, Variety, Uprox, uh Guardian, other places like that. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. And I'm on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, I made a nice
2: cameo appearance at, uh, uh, at Musings uh, you did. a few weeks ago. Thanks, Scott. Uh, but mostly I'm at com, where I serve as editorial director of film and television.
1: You can find me at com writing about uh, film and TV, occasionally books, although more and more I'm doing behind the scenes editorial stuff and enjoying that. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at NextPicturePod and via Facebook at Facebook.com slash Show. If you have not already rated us on iTunes, please consider subscribing there and giving us some kind of rating or review, because every thumbs up you give us helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance in producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base of Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Bye.